Ben Emberly come. Uh, he's our intern from uh, uh, the Northeast. I think you're the farthest away we've ever had, Ben, and uh, we're going to come and hear from him, share from God's Word uh, what uh, God has taught him. Come ahead, Ben. Well, good morning, Bear Valley Church. It's good to see you all. As Pastor Kevin said, my name is Ben. I'm from Northfield, Massachusetts. That's where I hail from. Uh, But it's been great to be in Bear Valley for the summer and to spend time with the youth and just enjoy being involved in their lives. And I was talking to them a couple weeks ago, and I I was saying that, you know, most people, when they get a chance to speak in front of a, a group like this, are probably thinking about, you know, how big the group is or if they're nervous or things like that. Honestly, uh, for a long time, I've been looking forward to, to wearing this mic because, I don't know, I just feel like they, they use these at the Master's College as well, and it's like, man, is a spy teaching to us? You know, it's like, this is awesome. And, and I told them I would report to them how awesome it felt, and I, I thought I'd be able to tell them that I'd be, I'd, like, I was up here and felt like I was waiting for a code red from the President of the United States or something like that. But honestly, I kind of just feel like Justin Bieber. So <laughs> it's not as, I'm not as awesome as you might think. Uh, I, I don't think a secret message is coming in, and I won't have to jet out for that. Um, but in all honesty, to, to spend the summer with the youth has been an amazing privilege. And I just wanted to thank all, uh, the congregation for uh, trusting me to hang out with your kids and your grandkids and uh, let me spend time with them. It'd be one thing to come in, it'd be one thing to come in and, and view it as just a job. Um, and maybe there's a temptation to do that when I first came in in the summer, but, uh, but I'm leaving with good friends. Um, and it's, it's awesome to have these high schoolers and these middle schoolers as my friends. And we've been studying First Peter. So if you'd open your Bibles to the book of First Peter, we're going to be in chapter 4 today. First Peter chapter 4. And as you do that, I, wanna, I want you to, to remember the story of Stephen. The story of Stephen. This is in the book of Acts. Uh, the book of Acts is about a time when the church is being built. The apostles have been given a mission to build the church and to to make disciples. And there's a time in which they come together and realize that they don't have time to serve the community in in the practical ways. They need to devote their time to studying the scripture, to knowing it, and to teaching it to those disciples. And so they appoint people in the church to take on those serving responsibilities. And one of those people who are chosen is, is Stephen. And there's a time when Stephen is, is doing miracles and he's teaching and he really ticks off the religious leaders of the day. Okay, they see him and they're like, we don't like this message. We don't want to hear about your Jesus. And so they grab him and they bring him before the religious leaders. And he, he gives this amazing gospel presentation that, that spans two chapters of the book of Acts, this long, this long preaching session about the gospel. And instead of the people responding and, and being saved and loving Jesus, they pick up rocks and they kill him. They stone him with rocks. And uh, at the end of his life, as he's, as he's being stoned, Stephen, Stephen says, uh, like, Father, don't, don't hold this against them. They don't know what they're doing. He's imitating his Savior who said, that for, who said that on the cross when he was being killed. And we just wonder, how was Stephen able to have a response like that in the midst of suffering? I think Stephen is, is a really good example of somebody who suffered and responded correctly. I just want to ask you all this morning, how are you suffering? How are you suffering? Do you ever suffer and what does it look like? 
And what we're going to see today is that God has a plan. God has a plan in the suffering we experience and the trials that we go through. And then those trials can look a lot of different ways, but in all of it, he is the only one who can help us. He's the only one who has the strength and provides the strength for us to then respond correctly to our circumstances. And what this means is that we are living in a sin-cursed world, and the reality is that we will. It's inevitable that we will fall upon hard times, and what do we do when they come? I just want to acknowledge real fast, uh, I am just a lowly intern. (laughs) I'm a 21-year-old pastor's kid who grew up in the church, and uh, if I'm honest, I've talked to, I've talked to middle schoolers and high, high schoolers who have been through more suffering than I have. And um, if you're looking at me and saying, you're, just, you're young, you don't know what suffering is, you're right. I don't have the experience to be able to communicate to you how to deal with suffering. But I think when we suffer, there are usually two, there are two things that, that we can do to help each other. One is the emotional aspect in which sometimes we just need a shoulder to cry on, right? We need, we need somebody to listen. And then there are other times when the initial pain of suffering has, has subsided and we're still thinking through these things, we need somebody to speak the truth. We need someone to speak the truth to us. And God has spoken the truth to us. And so, and so I want to talk about that this morning, not because I've experienced great suffering, but because I've studied it in hopes that when I do, I'll know how to respond correctly. And so we're in 1 Peter chapter 4, and we're going to read verses 12 through 19. Why don't you all stand? in honor of the fact that these are God's very words for us to hear this morning. Verses 12 through 19 of 1 Peter chapter 4. This is the word of God. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, these truths are beyond me to communicate, uh, but they, they are blessed truths that give us strength to deal with the hard times in our lives. Please give us ears to hear, and may we respond correctly to your word. In Christ's name I pray, amen. You guys can have a seat. So, like I said, the high school and I have been in First Peter all summer. So I just want to catch you up a little bit on where we are. Give us a context. We're, we're picking up in chapter 4, close to the end of the book, and I just want to give you a context of, of what's happening. The book is obviously written by Peter. This is the disciple Peter. It's the apostle uh, who helped start the church. This means that he walked with Jesus and he talked with Jesus and, and saw his miracles and was able to be impacted directly by his ministry. But he's, he's writing to, to Christians who have not had that experience. In fact, they're what we call second generation Christians. They didn't see Jesus. In fact, they, all they did was just hear about him from word of mouth. And these, these believers are scattered throughout the modern day area of Turkey and, and they're suffering. 
In fact, it's a context that's kind of, we're kind of getting there today in our own culture, where it's not major persecution, but, but Christians are looked down upon by the society. They're like, why don't you worship our pagan gods? Why do you do your, your religious practices? Uh, you guys are silly. You're ridiculous. And so Peter writes to them, and his goal is that he would be an encouragement. And he does that, he does that by grounding them in their faith, by reminding them that, believers, you've been saved. You have a savior. And, and he reminds them that because of the gospel, they are part of God's family. And then he moves to, to direction about how people in God's family should then live. So it's, it's, this, it's this balance where Peter spends a lot of time telling us the facts about who we are and then giving us direction about how we should then live. And in all of that, in all of that, our lifestyle is not based on our circumstances. And that's a hard truth to think about, that no matter what, God's word stands and we are to follow it. And this passage, verses 12 through 19, is a summary of the entire book. Peter takes a minute and he reflects back on all that he's written so far. And so we're going to see that identity. We're going to see how our lifestyle should look. And it's a reflection on those truths. And he really, he's wrapping things up. He's getting to his conclusion and his final words. And this is going to be tough truth to wrap our minds around as we think about how do we as Christians respond correctly to the suffering in our lives. And so what we're going to see is three truths. Three truths about suffering that we need to know in order to respond correctly. Uh, Three truths. Three truths about suffering that we need to know in order to respond correctly. If we want to hope to respond correctly to the trials that hit us in our lives, this passage helps us see uh, what we should do. And the first is this. The first truth is that suffering is a reality. The first truth is that suffering is a reality, and that is found in verses 12 and 13. Look at verse 12 with me. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. He opens up with the word beloved. This is the second time he's used this word in this book, and it really is a strong term. Your translation might say, dear friends or loved ones, and it's a very strong uh, familial term. He's saying, friends, beloved, listen to what I'm about to say. As we think about suffering, I think it's a danger to to get worried about about the the author being angry or harsh, and he's not. He's not speaking out of anger or, or harshness. He's saying, loved ones, If you want to deal with suffering, listen to this. You need this. And the idea of beloved is that you belong in a community. You belong in my community. Imagine hearing that from Peter himself, one they looked up to so much. And he's writing a letter to them and saying, you're in this church community with me. And really, you're loved by God. You're in God's community. So beloved, listen to this. And what he, what he says they're going through, it's called a fiery trial. And some people think that this is uh, during the time, that was, was written during the time of Nero. And so the fiery trial is this literal Christians were being heavily persecuted and burned at the stake. Uh, but really, it, this was probably written a little bit before that, which kind of makes it ironic um, because as, as, he, as he encourages them with a metaphorical uh, idea of this is a fiery trial, really he's preparing them for the heavy persecution that's about to come. And so in this context, this is individuals, individuals in the church going through hard times, uh, being looked down upon by the society. And, and, he, and we ask this question, how should the community respond? How should the community respond 
to all these pressures of life. And while the focus of this passage is persecution and, and uh, pressures from the outside world, I do think that we can take these truths and apply them to all sorts of suffering. Um, so this means that we can apply it to, to the employer in the workplace who asks you to, to compromise on your faith to get the job done. Or we can apply this to those who uh, throw jabbing comments at us because we're Christians. Uh, or the mocking, the mocking student in the hallway who, who you, you want to be a friend with, but they just they put you down because you're a Christian. But also, but also this relates to, to family tragedy, uh, broken relationships, and, and health problems or sudden injuries. Um, whatever you can think about for suffering, it is evidence that we live in an era that is marked by sin and a fallen world. And so I want to ask today, how are you suffering? Think of the way that you're suffering, but also uh, think of people around you and think, how are the people of Bear Valley Church suffering? Because these truths are things that, that we need to communicate to each other. And he says, beloved, do not be surprised. Isn't this the case with us often? I know, I know it's the case for me when something hard comes into my life. It takes me off guard every time. And it's like, I know I live in this world that is hard and I expect it to come, but it's just like, why am I suffering? I'm a Christian. Doesn't God love me? I live in America. You know, I, this, this, should be, this should be easier. This should be easier. And for, for part, some encouragement, this idea of not being surprised, it's not talking about the initial shock. I think that if it's a tragedy or uh, you feel the pain of somebody who looks down on you and, and lets you know that they look down on you, there's going to be that initial pain. But it's this idea of continuous bewilderment. Like, come on, why is there more suffering? I, I mean, aren't we past this as a society yet? Because um, truthfully, truthfully, suffering is a reality. In one of my favorite, one of my favorite stories, there's two travelers, and, and they're, they're on a really long journey, and they've been together for a long time. And, and one, of, one of the characters is known for being, for being a happy, jovial guy, always in a good mood, um, trying to, to, to push, them, push people towards optimism. And his friend looks at him, and he, and he, says, he says, Sam, nothing can darken your spirits. Nothing can darken your spirits. And Sam, you know, kind of smiles and he looks out, looks out over the horizon and the center of the mountain and he sees this big, this big storm cloud. And he sees a storm's coming. And in response to that idea that nothing can dampen his spirits, he says, those storm clouds might. Those storm clouds might. And that's the way it is with us for suffering. Either, either the storm cloud is over us and we are in, we are in the trial or we're afraid that it's coming and we can see it looming over us. We can see it looming over us. It's an ever-present reality. And um, he says, Don't, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. And so here's the encouragement. When he says, when it comes upon you to test you, Peter is saying that our suffering has a purpose. In chapter one, he talked about how our trials, they purify the church and they prove our faith. They identify us with who Christ is and they prove our faith. And so I want to, there's a couple thoughts on that. First, I want, I want you guys to know that suffering is not a punishment. Sometimes we hit a trial and we think that, that God's looking down on us and he is trying to punish us for something we did or he really doesn't love us anymore. But that's not the case. It's not the case. Suffering is not a punishment. You don't need to feel like you've been doing something wrong if you run into suffering. Another thought, unlike the world, Unlike the world, our trials mean something. They mean something in our lives. The world responds to suffering and, and, they, and they come up with things to cope, like survival of the fittest 
or, you know, that's just the way things are. Or maybe they just, they try to ignore it, try to ignore it by, by, by pushing it out and, and not even acknowledging that suffering is a real thing. But our trials, we can look to God and say, God, you have a plan in this. There's a purpose. And what we see as evil, we can trust God so that he is working for good. And, and he goes on, look at verse 12. Don't be surprised when it comes to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Back to that idea of the storm cloud, right? I think we all know what a storm cloud does. When a st- if a storm cloud were to come over us and then it were to start raining, we would not be like, ah, ah that's wet. There's water and it's wet and it's, it's raining. No, we saw a storm cloud, we'd run inside and we'd respond correctly, right? It's the same with suffering. Sometimes we hit suffering, it's like, it's painful. Why is it painful? Why do I have to feel this? And, and, and God wants us to realize that if we can cope with the fact that it's a reality, then we'll be more in a place to respond correctly when it comes. And so what this means is that we should not, we should not be surprised when as Christians we suffer uh, politically, uh, morally, socially, or culturally. Uh, and I think, I think we can look at what's going on in the news and with our government and we can we know that, there's a, that there is a time coming when, when there, we may have to deal with people looking down on us and, and maybe, maybe sometime persecution. Um, we are now experiencing the effects of a world that's tainted by sin. And that is a sad thought, but look at verse 13. He says, don't be surprised, verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Insofar is kind of a weird term, but he's just saying, uh, that, w- that when you suffer, you are identifying yourself with Christ. Why can we rejoice? Because when we suffer, we partner ourselves with Christ. Look, if God's glorious plan, which is to save us, to, to redeem us and bring us into his family, if his glorious plan was moved forward by Jesus suffering, then why do we think that God doesn't or can't work through the suffering in our own lives? Do you get that? Do you get that if God's plan to save us, if it was accomplished by himself suffering, God's suffering, then why do we think that God can't work through the suffering in our own lives? In fact, it's an honor to say that, Jesus, I I will suffer as you did for your purposes and that you can accomplish something big in my life. And all of this is building up. Look at the end of verse 13, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So we can rejoice now because his glory is going to be revealed. And what that means is that Christ is coming back. And what that holds for us as believers is is the hope of being rescued from the suffering, being rescued from the trials that we have in our life and ultimately fellowship with God. And that future should impact our present hope. And that is an encouragement there's an encouragement that we are pushing towards that day when Christ will return and we will rejoice forever, forever. So how does this apply to our lives? The first truth that we have to come to terms with is that if we're going to respond to suffering correctly, we must know that suffering is a reality. And it's sobering, it's really sobering. But we have to realize that there's going to be times when to our confusion, God allows a trial in our life. This could be a family member who rejects the gospel, or, or a general cultural rejection of Christians as God's people. Uh, maybe uh, at school, the popular student that you want to be with, that you want to be your friend, rejects you because you are a Christian. Or maybe one day we experience persecution. 
We know that there are, that are brothers and sisters across the world who are experiencing persecution. But there are other trials too. A family member could die. That could be tragedy that hits us at any time. There could be stress and tension in the family or broken relationships. And these are all very real, but, but our outcome is secure. God has a plan. And I just want to stop for a second and just praise God that that first point is not the last point. That's not the entire point of the passage. If the only point was that suffering is a reality, we'd be dragging our feet like, oh, suffering's real, you know? But it's not. So praise the Lord, let's move on, okay? Verse 14, the second, the second truth that we need to come to terms with and we need to know is that suffering for Christ is good. Suffering for Christ is good. That's verses 14 through 18. This is what we need to know. We need to know that there is a right kind of suffering that is good and, and that God blesses, but there's also a wrong kind of suffering, a suffering that is not good. And first, let's look at, look at the right kind. Verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, so if you are insulted, this is, this is talking about primarily verbal persecution. If somebody tears you down, degrades you because you are a Christian, for the name of Christ, this is suffering because you are connected with Jesus, because you identify as a Christian and you follow Christ, you suffer. What does he say? You are blessed. What? It's like, you're blessed because you suffer? How can, how can suffering for Christ's name be an honorable thing? That's something that God approves and blesses. You are blessed. And here's how we're blessed. This is awesome. If you are insulted in the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. He is saying that God lives in you. When you are saved, God lives in you and he wants to help you through these things. And there's some debate about what, uh, how, uh, because the spirit of glory and of God, what exactly that means. Um, the different translations, it basically comes out to me in the same thing. The more important point is this. He says, the spirit of God, that's God himself, rests upon you. Do you hear that? Rests. That's present tense. And you're like, we're talking about suffering. You're going to give me a grammar lesson? That's, that's, that's kind of weird. Well, it's really important. Think about this. Think about the Old Testament. When Isaiah prophesies about Jesus coming, he says that Jesus will come and the spirit of God will rest upon him. And then in the New Testament, in the Gospels, when Jesus is talking about uh, the era of the church, he says, I will send my spirit. And now here, Peter says, the spirit rests upon us. Now, this is amazing that we live in a time where God dwells with his people. Do you realize that, that God has always wanted to dwell with his people? And, and there were things that he had to teach them before that could happen. And, and Christ had to die so that could happen. Back in the Old Testament, God lived in a tent with Israel, he lived in a tent with Israel and the, and the way that, that he could dwell with his people is if they obeyed the law and, and they proved that they couldn't and we proved that we couldn't, we can never be good enough to dwell with God. And so Christ came and he fixed it and he died and now the spirit lives within us. And by suffering for his sake, we prove, we prove that he is among us. We show the genuineness of our faith. Because if you're not a Christian, you're not going to suffer for Christ's name. But if you do, if you suffer and you respond correctly, God's presence in your life is confirmed. And you can rest easy knowing that God is with you. And so that is the awesome truth. But then Peter takes a moment and he reminds us that there is a wrong way to suffer. There is a wrong way to suffer. Look at verse 15. But, 
Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. And what he's doing is he's arguing from greatest to least. So it's like, let none of you suffer as a murderer. Okay, phew, not a murderer, never killed anybody. Let none of you suffer as a thief. Uh, maybe when I was a kid, I stole a few things when I was younger. Uh, or as an evildoer. Okay, I do some wrong things sometimes. Or as a meddler. A meddler is kind of a weird term. It basically means somebody who's, who's getting involved in other people's affairs. Not that big of a deal, you know? So it's basically he's saying, if you suffer, make sure you're not suffering it and that you actually, your actions brought it upon you. Make sure you don't suffer like the world does. Don't, make sure you don't sin and then suffer for it. It's like this. You, you've read a story or seen a movie where the whole plot revolves around uh, an innocent person going to jail, right? So this guy, uh, they think they, he gets framed. They accuse him of murder, and so they, they throw him in jail for life. And he spends, his whole, he spends like the next 10 years with a fork and a ballpoint pen digging, a, digging in the cement and going under the, under the, the wall, right? And, and when he breaks free and finally gets out, the crowd's like, yes, justice, he's innocent, and he made it out. We would not do that. We would not do that if some axe murderer broke free, right? We'd be like, oh, you're out of jail. It's so good to see. See, I'm so sorry that you had to you know, spend 10 years for killing someone, right? They wouldn't do that. And that's why most of us don't want to live near jail, right? Okay? Uh, you don't want to suffer like that. You don't want to suffer and actually be someone who brought it upon yourself, don't suffer like the world does by doing what's wrong. Look at verse 16. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Again, we are so tempted to feel shame when we hit a hard trial in our life. We feel like God doesn't love us. We feel like the culture is against us. We feel like everything is just down on us and we feel the pressure. And, and Peter says, don't be ashamed. It is normal. It is in fact, it is often called upon for believers to suffer for Christ's sake that his purposes might be revealed. In 1 John, John says that perfect love that's being perfected in Christians casts out fear. Why? Because fear has to do with punishment. And as Christians, we do not have to fear punishment. We don't have to fear punishment. I think we often view God in terms of, of like Greek mythological pagan gods. You know, Zeus He's got these lightning bolts, and it's like, whoa, Zeus, what are you going to do with those lightning bolts? And he's like up there just like, take this suffering and that suffering, and he's throwing it out like it's randomly, and that's not the way God works. He's not trying to zap you up there. He wants your best purposes. He has your best in mind. Look at the end of verse 16. Don't be ashamed. But look there, but let him glorify God in that name. Either this is, this is referring to uh, glorifying God in the name of being a Christian or in the, in the matter of being connected to Christ. Either way, to identify with Christ is good. It is a very good thing. And to suffer for Christ is to share in his sufferings and is to follow him. And that is a good thing. God, God loves that and, and he's working through it. I'm going to read verses 17 and 18. It's, it's a little bit confusing, um, but it is an encouragement. And I'm going to explain it briefly. Look at verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what's going to become of the ungodly and the sinner? So he's talking about this time of judgment. And in other books of the Bible, uh, the, the, the apostle Paul wrote that we are living in the last days. So this judgment is, is the effects of what sin has brought upon us. And as we live in this world that's affected by sins, 
And, and as we realize that suffering is a reality, there's no guarantee that in this life, as God judges that sin, that, that, that the suffering might come over and affect us in some way. Not as punishment, but as the reality of where we are historically as the church, that God is going to purify the church through suffering. But is guaranteed, what is guaranteed is that this judgment is done by a just God, that the judge of all the earth is going to do right in the end, that this, uh, that this um, judgment, this suffering purifies the church, and that in all of it, God has a plan. And ultimately what's guaranteed is this, um, that our ultimate rescue and escape from suffering will happen. And there'll be a day when Christ comes and makes everything right. But this is not so for those who reject the gospel. Peter, Peter asked these ominously open-ended questions that just makes you feel like, whoa, whoa, Peter, what are you saying? He says, if it begins with us, this is verse 17, if even Christians are going to suffer, what's going to become of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what's going to become of the ungodly and the sinner. If even Christians feel suffering as God deals with this sin-cursed world, what's it going to be like for those who are rejected in the end? It's a heavy question. But the, the, the goal is not to focus on that. Instead, Peter says, that is not your outcome. That is not your outcome. You do not have to fear that. Your outcome in the end is good, and God will save, God will rescue, and that it is a glorious thing to dwell on. So again, let's put this into our own lives. Understanding the reality of suffering, we must make sure that if we do suffer, we're not suffering for the wrong reasons. If we're going to suffer in a persecution-type way, it should be that it is because our identity is connected with Christ. So basically, this is what this means, okay? This might be a little hard. We should not be the ones going down to the courthouse and vandalizing it because we don't like the decisions that are being made in the government, all right? We should not be the ones who, uh, who have the picket signs with hate speech written all over it. That is not what God has called us to be. Uh, we should not be the students in our, in our high schools and our colleges who, who disrespect our teachers because they are mean or they are atheists, okay? In fact, in all of this, our lifestyle in the midst of suffering should point others to the fact that we have a relationship with the God of the universe. Our lifestyle should attract people. Um, suffering for Christ is a good thing. Again, I want to praise God. This is not where it ends. Because if all we had was that the fact that suffering is a reality, and if all we had was that suffering for Christ is good, then we'd be left without, the sh- without any, any hope or strength for how to do it while we're here on this earth. We'd be looking forward to the end, but, but now what do we do? How do we respond correctly to suffering this is one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. One of my favorite passages ends with one of my favorite verses. The third, the third truth about suffering is that God provides the strength to deal with suffering. <clears throat> God provides the strength to deal with suffering. And this is the most important point. If you want to respond correctly, if we want to respond correctly as a church, then we must, we must turn to God and trust him. We have to trust that he has our best interest in mind and the interest of his believers. And so this verse, verse 19, it is a summary of this passage. Really, it is a summary of the entire book. And it brings us everything to mind that we've been talking about. 
we will see, we will see our identity and the reality of suffering, and then we'll see how to deal with it. it. Opens up verse 19, therefore, therefore, knowing all this, knowing that suffering is a reality, knowing that, that you should suffer for, knowing, uh, for, for following Christ, knowing that we still have a responsibility to live a godly lifestyle in our communities, let those who suffer, verse 19, therefore, let those who suffer, there's the reality of suffering again, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will according to God's will. We have to be encouraged by the fact that God is behind everything. And it's not in the sense that he's just, he's just smirking and looking for a way to, 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 to put suffering in our lives. Instead, it is somebody who holds our lives, which are precious to him, by the way. Peter said that already, that our faith is precious to God. He is holding our lives in his hands. And how often do we feel like our lives are falling apart? We feel like they're falling apart and if we just took a second to realize, God, you are holding my life in your hands and you have my good in mind. How encouraging that would be to us. And what is our response? Look at verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator. This idea of entrusting your soul and trusting is to hand over completely to say, I, I don't have control over this. And he's talking about our souls, our lives. Hand your souls over to him. Give up the control. Ultimately, ultimately, listen to this. Ultimately, our decisions and, and our actions do not baffle God. They do not confuse him. He is not thrown off by the suffering. He is working in all of it. And be like a bank, okay? Imagine right now if you had your entire life savings in your hands. And there are two banks to choose from to, to go invest your savings in. And one bank had a track record where there was you know, constant fraud. They were always losing people's money and, and identity theft. And it was just a big problem. And then the other bank had a perfect track record and, and kept the money safe and cared about your well-being. You would invest your money in the bank that had the good track record. Okay? And that is our God. We entrust our lives to who? A faithful creator. We can entrust our lives to him because he's a faithful creator whose purposes are all working out to the end, pushing towards the end where Christ will be glorified, the church will be saved from suffering, and we will live in fellowship with him forever. And Peter goes back to the beginning by describing him as creator. It doesn't happen too often in the New Testament. By identifying him as our creator, he goes back to the beginning and says, let's look at his track record. What is our God's track record? Well, first, he's powerful. He made everything by speaking. And he made everything perfect. And then this creator is good. When his people failed and sinned, immediately, as soon as they sinned, he promised. He said, I will send someone who's going to fix this. I will send someone who will fix the situation. We will have fellowship again. We will be a family. When his people Israel failed, he loved them. And he had grace. And, and he sent himself, he sent his son to die on the cross for our sins, that we would be saved. And now we get to us. What does this mean for us? Now we have his spirit in us and he knows our situations and he's working through them. He is faithful. So I just want to take a minute. If you're not a believer, if you've been coming for a couple weeks and you've been hearing this idea about the gospel, the best thing you can do if you want to handle the suffering in your life, not that things will be perfect, but if you want to get a grip on what all these things mean, the thing you need to do is turn to Christ. Turn to the God who loves you, 
who cares so deeply for you. If you don't understand that idea of repentance and forgiveness of sins, talk to someone in the church. Talk to a pastor. Talk to me afterwards. Um, For believers, remind yourselves of these frequently. Tell yourself these things. Peter has told us earlier in in, in the book that God is a shepherd and an overseer of our souls. And do you know what this faithful creator promises? I want to jump ahead. Look, look, go to chapter five. We're going to read chapter five, verses nine through 11. And, and if you wonder, is this creator really faithful? Is, does he, is his promises good? Will he follow through in the end? We're going to read verses nine through 11. And Peter has just been talking about how the devil is trying to trip up believers. And he tells them, verse nine, resist him, resist the devil firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. This brings to mind our our believers who are suffering because of ISIS and other uh, forms of persecution. Verse 10, so encouraging. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. That creator who made everything, who focused all of history around saving us, says that he himself will personally restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us in our suffering. What peace. And knowing these truths, knowing these truths, it is only then that we can turn around and respond correctly. Ultimately, our response is to entrust our souls to him. It is to say, God, you have control. Please work in my life. I trust you. Give me that peace. But how is that shown? Look at the end of verse 19. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. We've been left back to be his witnesses We've been left back to show the world that we do have a faithful creator, that he is worth following. And our lifestyle does that. And I just want to challenge you, put off the old life, put off the worry and the fear and turn to Christ and live for him. That faithfulness of our creator is what gives us the strength to deal with the suffering in our time. And so I want to go back to the stoning of Stephen. If you were asking, how can Stephen, at the end of his life, be standing in front of religious leaders probably at some time in his life who he had looked up to as those who, who were somehow just more holy than he. He's trying to present the gospel to them, and instead of accepting, they kill him. How can he then look at them and say, they don't know what they're doing? Don't hold it against them. It is because he had entrusted his soul to his creator, And he knew that through his suffering, he was identifying with Christ and God had a greater purpose in mind. And from there, the church exploded. The gospel did go forth. The message was continued and the church grew. So in conclusion today, I I can't stand up here and claim to know or even claim to be able to relate to suffering that you're going through. But I can seek to encourage you with this, that the God who did did everything to redeem you and who placed your identity, who you are in his family with Christ, that is the same God who promises to strengthen you in the tough situations in your life. Turn to him and give your life. And so I feel I have an obligation to the high schoolers in working with you. Uh, High schoolers, this next year, 
because of the reality of suffering. Honestly, it could be the hardest of your life. I don't know. I hope not. It could be an extremely hard year. Please turn to your creator. He is faithful. Trust him in his purposes. Adults, as you look at our culture, you know you know that there's suffering coming, that, that being a Christian is not going to be popular. It already isn't popular. Um, I don't know what you're going through. You could be in the hardest storm cloud of your life right now. And all I can say is this, turn to God. Give your life to him. Trust that he has his ultimate purpose, your ultimate purpose in mind. And then live for him. Look to him and live for him. And just know that he does care very deeply and he longs that you would grow and trust him. Why? Because he's a faithful creator. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for this passage. As we started off, it, it is hard, and it is, it is difficult to come to grips with that there are times when you may call us to suffer, whether that's persecution or just in extremely difficult times in our lives. But we know that you are faithful, and we just want to acknowledge today that you are good, and we trust your purposes for us. And when life is hard, may we turn to you all the more, confident to rest in your love for us, knowing that in the end, you will do right. You will make everything right. We love you for that, Lord. Please help us live for you today. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Dismissed? I think you're dismissed. All right.